Welcome to the Seek Outside Podcast. Yeah, there's there's no question to know. David Lean. And you were the uh, head chapter leader of Colorado VHA? Clay Hayes. Uh, well, I got stalked by a mountain lion, uh, made a fishing pole out of a lodgepole pine. Falconry and bird dogs, can they coexist? Oh man, and do they. Shitty weather and lots of bears. That's what this podcast is about. You made a point when you get up in those high basins and the thunderstorms come rolling in. That's how I got into trail running. Some people are just wired that way. Shitty weather and lots of bears. That's what this podcast is about. <laughs> oh. Yep. Our guest is Mark Penninger. Um, Mark has an interesting trip planned. He also has a passion for uh, Kodiak Island. So why don't we go into uh, how you developed your passion? Sure. Um, back in about 1995, 94, I really started wanting to do a, a hunting trip to Alaska. And my financial means at the time uh, ruled out moose, caribou, any kind of guided hunt. So I started researching other options up there for do-it-yourself type trips. And I've got some good uh, guidance from other hunters who hunt, hunted black bears and Sitka blacktail deer on their own. And I thought, those sound like good options. So I really keyed in on the blacktail deer because I love deer hunting. And uh, me and two buddies did a trip in 1996. Uh, we were, it was our first trip, all three of our first trip to Alaska. And um, originally my planning started with Southeast Alaska because some of those places you can rent a car and drive out to hunt. Uh, but through my research, a lot of people started steering me toward Kodiak Island. They said it's a wilder experience, uh, the deer hunting's better, and it's a long season, whether you're hunting Kodiak or Southeast, so you kind of pick your time when you want to hunt deer during the early season when you're spotting stalking uh, uh, bachelor groups of bucks at high elevation, or during the rut when the bucks are roaming around chasing does. Of course, there's weather trade-offs depending on what time of year you go, but basically that first trip, um, three of us went. We killed a few deer with rifles on that trip. No success with the bows. We experienced winds and rains like I'd never seen. That was a September trip. And we were stuck in our tents for 72 hours, just able to get out and go to the bathroom, basically. And that was my intro to Alaska. And I swore I'd probably never go back to that spot again. (laughs) But a few years later, um, I'd probably fast forward another four years, I did another trip with three other guys, and um, we had a wonderful time, killed some bucks, uh, had a little bit of bear problems where a a brown bear destroyed our camp when we were out at night packing a deer back in. And then, the time between then and now, I've gone six different times to Kodiak, one time on a guided goat hunt, um, and on that same hunt, I I spent a couple of days and did a solo deer hunt with my rifle and caught some salmon. It was a fun trip. But all my other trips have been to hunt Sitka blacktail deer with my longbow or recurve. And so, yep. So your very first time, you were tent bound for 72 hours, blowing sideways or whatever, raining super hard. You basically said, 
I'm never going back to this place again. What changed there? Was it was it that type A fun, like Ranella's talked about, the type A fun? It's not very fun when you're doing it, but when you think back, you're like, oh, the good old days of being tent bound for 72 hours. You nailed it. <laughs> it's just like packing an elk out of a canyon. Yeah, yeah. When you're doing it, you're like, you're making deals with God. I'll never do this again as long as I live. And by next season, you're ready to do it again. <laughs> and uh, but I just remember feeling so free and self-sufficient and it's such a wild raw place um it was exciting it was adventure like i'd never experienced before like right like when you're reading a book as a kid yeah and you're thinking like wow that's some cool adventure this and is it i'm in it right now when you're yeah. there and yeah so yeah as time went on i started really getting a hankering to go back and now i've just made it a a point to revisit kodiak every chance i get and this and we're going to talk a little bit about my upcoming trip. This will be my seventh trip to Kodiak. Um, and this one's going to be quite a bit different because it's not specific to deer hunting, even though I'll do a little bit of that. Yeah. But, yeah, Kodiak is just one of those places that you have the brown bears, some of the biggest carnivores on the on the earth and fairly high densities of them. There's great salmon and steelhead runs. Uh, there's a an excellent uh, mountain goat and Sitka black-tailed deer population. Those are both... Uh, mammals that have been introduced to the island there's only six or seven native species of of mammals on that island brown bear is one of them uh, red fox i used to think that the foxes were were introduced but i read later it, it's actually one of the native species there oh it is yeah and i think there's a bat and some small mammals ermine snowshoe hare those are some of the native so species. how did i mean you're you're a wildlife biologist by trade right y- yep correct so how did those animals get there out of the island? I mean, like, New Zealand didn't really have anything, right? And to, everything was in Well, when you say everything, the mammals were. Okay. It, New Zealand had, I think, two native bats and then lots of flightless birds, you know, and other species uh, of wildlife, but not mammals. And, of course, explorers dumped off everything under the sun on, on New Zealand. But, you know, when islands are formed during earlier geologic periods, um, a lot of islands were connected to mainlands before they were set. Others, like Hawaii, were formed from the ocean up, you know. Things like brown bears, it's conceivable that they could make it by water or partial ice, walking on ice and then swimming the rest of the way. So they either colonized or if that, I don't remember the origin of Kodiak Archipelago, which is a the collection of islands that make up that Kodiak area. Um, but I'm imagining some of those smaller species are from when it was connected, either you know by land or ice or some way to mainlands. Um, you know, you asked me a question there. I I don't know exactly the answer to it. Okay. So, but then those other species, uh, some reindeer, which just look like caribou, and the deer and the goats have been introduced to that island. Okay. So, like a friend of mine uh, who lives in Alaska. He was using our tent. I wouldn't say, well, the friend, I'd consider him a friend. He's also a customer. He was using like our 12-man. And they were doing a deer hunt. And they had brown bears outside their tent all night long, taking advantage of, you know, their hard work and fortuitous um, killing of deer, right? And they said that was their worst night ever in the woods. 
Um, the next night, they taped like mag lights or flashlights to the rifles so that they could actually see out and they'd called in and gotten permission that if things went a little sideways and I guess the weather was bad enough that they couldn't really get picked up. Have you had any of those kind of like just bears outside your... Oh yeah. Uh, all night long? Many times. Um, the trip I did, my second trip there, I think it was around 2000, 1999 or 2000, um, we had a, a bear that came in and destroyed most of our camp. Um, at that time, we had a, one of those Alaska Guide Series tents, big green dome thing with a big vestibule. And one of my friends had a little North Face tent. Now, the bear destroyed the North Face, tore his thermoreft in half, chewed up his extra boots, ate all our food, walked inside the big Alaska Guide Series tent and ripped some holes in a big hole in the roof of that. And we discovered that in progress when we came back in late at night with a deer on our back. <laughs> and uh, a good hunting buddy of mine, Tom Van Ash from Albany, Oregon, he wrote wrote a story of that account. Uh, it's called Drizzly Days and Grizzly Nights, and it was pu- published in Traditional Bowhunter magazine several years ago. You could probably look it up online. But oh, really? He covers all the details of that. And we were bow hunting, uh, but we had guns for bear protection and. We never had to shoot the bear, but we did fire over 50 shots into the ground or over that bear's head, and it terrorized us for two nights in a row. And when you go up for, you know, 30 hours with no sleep, your your judgment starts to wane, and you're miserable. Um, that bear cost us a good solid two days of hunting, and that was before sat phones were readily available, so we had no way to communicate to come get us early. So we just had to wait it out and defend ourselves against that bear. And a hunter's responsibility in Alaska or anywhere there's bears should be to come home safe and not hurt bears at the same time if you're not hunting them. So we succeeded. It was miserable, but the bear never got shot or injured, and we never got injured. So That uh, was your second trip, was it? That was my second trip. And so now you've been tent-bound 72 hours on one trip. Yep. You had a bear just uh, <laughs> destroy your stuff on your second trip. Yeah. And you said... Damn it, I love this place. I can't wait to get back. <laughs> I know it sounds kind of mental, but um, uh, yeah, it gets under your skin. It's so crazy and adventure. You know, there's so much adventure there. And my next several trips have been less, uh, I've had less issues with weather and uh, and bears. But now I look forward to seeing the bears. I'd rather see them than know that they're there and not see them, you know. Um, one adjustment I've made to my later trips is I found out the, the Alaska Fish and Game Department, they often put their remote employees in uh, in uh, portable electric fences uh, around fish weirs. Uh, the, the biologist camps out there in remote areas that are monitoring these fish weirs uh, use a electric fence around their food and or their camp. And so I went to the local feed store and bought a, the most portable uh, electric unit I could and bought uh, a, these fiberglass stakes. I cut those in half and did a little plumbing collet uh, thing that I epoxied onto it so these things break down. They're a lot shorter than they would be for traveling. And then I zip tie those things back together, put them in the ground, and uh, it's the lightest, the whole unit is probably eight to 10 pounds. Yeah. Um, and when you're flying a beaver, uh, I always come in underweight when I fly up there because I just, I've got my gear uh, 
pretty well dialed in. So even with the addition of that extra 10 pounds or so of fence stuff, I'm still way underweight. But putting, I usually put that thing around my sleeping quarters. Um, does it I'm, make you sleep better? It does, but I don't know why. I, I should know better because twice deer have come along and got their antlers caught in it and tore it down in the middle of the night, and I didn't know it. I wake up and my fence is down, so it's not working because it's not grounded. And I see deer tracks and where a buck had just fought my fence at some point during the night. <laughs> so my this my next trip, I believe I'm going to put my fence around my food. Because usually the bears want your food, not you. Uh, it's the food or other smells like toothpaste, you know, anything like chewing gum, any foreign scent like that. A bear is going to key in on it. And so... I think uh, we we always keep our sleeping quarters free of any kind of food item. Even a an old used candy bar or granola wrapper, don't stick that thing in your pocket or your pack and bring it into my tent. That thing has to stay out because I don't want any kind of attractant. Um, so you did, we talked a little bit because we're planning a 40-mile yep. uh, hunt this year. So when you did your 40-mile hunt, um, you used the same strategy. You took your fence and everything or... Yes, but I didn't take the electric fence on that. Oh, you didn't? No. I, in, inland grizzlies in places like uh, Upper Yukon, Charlie Rivers Preserve, where you're going to be hunting, does not have the density of bears like Kodiak does. Okay. And so even though Kodiak brown bears tend to not be that ornery, occasionally you'll find a you know, a, a, a juvenile or a teenager, they call them, that's kind of, uh, kind of a pain in the butt. Um, and very brazen, will just come in and take what they want from your camp with you sitting there. Um, a lot of inland grizzlies aren't like that. All my experiences in the interior have been when the bear sees or smells me, it's gone. It runs as fast as it can in the other direction. That's what I saw in the Arctic. Well, typically smelling. Um, yeah. I, I have had some that see me, and I'm downwind of them, and they get curious and come closer until they win me, then they run. Yeah. But brown bears on Kodiak, uh, they're s- relatively lightly hunted. So they don't have this this fear of people so much, and um, they can be brazen. And, and but but yeah, my my caribou hunt with my daughter, I did not take an electric fence, but I took my teepee, uh, eight person seek outside teepee, and a Hilleberg tent. I think it's called the Tarp Twenty. It's a big red, actually finished size is like fourteen point four feet square. It's got lots of good uh, tie downs all the way around it. It's a really light material, similar to what you make your tents out of and that's what i I can put that in lots of different configurations for cooking and eating and when i when we're done and go out for a day of hunting i lay it down so the wind doesn't rip it to crap and uh, come back in the evening put it up and we cook and eat in it whether it's raining or a place to get out of the out of the sun it makes a great tarp for being away from your sleeping quarters so let's move to your trip this year. I'll be honest. You told me about the trip. Mm-hmm. Sounds to me like you're trying to get in the highest bear density areas there are on Kodiak. <laughs> um, yeah. And just live amongst <laughs> the bears. Well, I'm not trying to do that. But just as the circumstances dictate, um, me and two friends are going up targeting uh, steelhead and silver salmon with our fly rods. Um, one is a fishing buddy of mine, Sarah Brandy from Lagrand. She used to live in southeast Alaska. Now she's a fisheries biologist for the Forest Service uh, there in Lagrand, and we fish. We've been fishing several times together. And then a good friend of hers named Chad. He also, I think, has a fisheries background. He lives over in Boise, Idaho. Um, 
and she introduced me to him by phone. And I'll tell you, I've always been hesitant about going to Alaska with someone I don't know yeah. and completely trust. But after just a few minutes of talking to Chad, I could tell uh, he's got the experience and the attitude and the know-how. I have no reservations about going with him. I just also coincidentally have a mutual friend of his who's a best friend. I think they were in each other's weddings years ago. That guy vouched for Chad and said, the guy is solid. Sometimes you have to choose your hunting buddies you, more careful than your wife. You, oh, yeah, absolutely. Especially in Alaska, when you want everyone in camp to use good judgment and not compromise on bear safety or bear etiquette, you got to trust that everyone there understands and appreciates that and that food will be shared fairly and equally. And, you know, all the candy bars aren't gone on day two because one guy decided to eat them all. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of stuff creates tensions in camp and just can mess up a hunt. I was talking to a friend of mine who hunted uh, with his, a buddy of his for several years, and he said that uh, the last time he hunted with his buddy, his buddy was like asking him to zip him into a sleeping bag and it was like what the heck is this guy doing i mean you want to tuck him in or what you know you want me to read you a bedtime story you know there are three little pigs uh, <laughs> so, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah I, I have no i do not want a hunting buddy that i have to read a bedtime story to nope nope you know i like sharing hunting stories but i like hunting by myself and, and a good friend to come back to camp with and share your day's experience, you know. Yeah. But I never kill anything when I'm out with a friend. Right. I always kill when I'm by myself. Right. That, so let's let's get into this trip a little bit. Yeah. So I mentioned fishing is going to be the primary focus of this trip. Um, steelhead, if we're going to be on the very early run of steelhead and in the middle of the silver run. So that should be great. And um, we're going to float two rivers. Originally, it started out just uh, one river, the Carlick River. So if you go to, if you look at a map, go to the far northwest side of Kodiak, as far as you can go. And um, the Carlick River starts in Carlick Lake and runs about 22 miles out to the ocean in the uh, Carlick Village. And uh, there's a bay there that empties into the ocean. And the first, when I first started looking at that, I think it was Sarah's idea to do this trip. And um, I started looking into the logistics and realized it's a little more complicated than just getting a bush plane to fly you in there with a raft and do it. The first several miles is uh, Native Corporation's land, which is private, with easements where you can camp and one place you could land a plane without needing to get a permit from the Native Lands Corporation. Otherwise, uh, you pay $200 access fee to the Native Lands Corporation, and if you're going to hunt, you have to get another $200 like deer permit uh, just to be hunting, in addition to your tag and your license from the state of Alaska. So a few more hundred bucks, you know, started chalking up if you, if you use their lands. But there is a way to do it without landing or camping on Native Corporation lands. And so that's the route we're going to take. And the first, I don't know, first three quarters of the river is in a really broad open valley with tundra. I've looked down on it from where I've deer hunted a couple times. It's just a sinuous river, fairly slow moving, that has one of the biggest pink salmon runs in the in the state, I guess, and a really good steelhead run. It's like the second best steelhead run in the state of Alaska. And decent numbers of silvers too. And um 
So we're going to, and then the lower part of that river goes into the mountain, into the mountain area. So it becomes more confined with beautiful mountains, better deer hunting, I'm sure. Uh, and then it empties out at Carlick uh, Village where the pilot will pick us up. But as we were planning this thing, um, I started hearing about another river, Uganic River. I've all, uh, that's near where I hunted my mountain goat. And I could look down on that Uganic area and Uganic Bay. And it looks awesome for deer. And it's just a beautiful timbered landscape with big cottonwoods along the river. Mountains right up to the edge of the river. And a lot of spruce and conifers in that area. Totally different setting than the, than the uh, Carlick River. So I talked to my bush plane uh, pilot who flew me on my goat hunt and a few of my deer hunts. And he says, you know, you could do both. He said, I could drop you at uh, Uganic River and spend four days. That's a really short river. It's less than five miles long. And a lot of people, a lot of people do it in a day and just a day fishing trip. And then a bush plane flies them out. But we're going to spend four days and three nights on the Uganic River fishing from the lake to the ocean. And then we're going to get picked up in that bay and moved over to the uh, Carlick River and spend six days floating that river. And the other two, uh, my two travel companions, I don't think they're interested in hunting. So I'm probably going to take my longbow, uh, half dozen arrows, and get me a deer tag and a hunting license. And when I get tired of catching fish, I'm going to go embark up into the hills and try to find a buck. So, <clears throat> so you're going to get all super fishy. Handling fish all day. Uh-huh. Then you're going to sleep in your tent with all these <laughs> grizzlies around. Blowing sideways rain. Uh, what kind of raft are you guys using? Um, well, first of all, the fishy smelling thing. That is something we definitely need to pay attention to. So we'll rinse our hands off every time we handle a fish. We'll leave our waders out hung upside down in brush so they don't get rained in, but away from our sleeping tent so we'll do our best to keep all the fish smells away from our tent and that time of year because there's so many salmon in the streams smell of fish in our tent or on our tent isn't going to be as an attractant as the 3,000 fish they see right there in the river you know so uh but anyway the our watercraft um chad he's got a uh pro pioneer made by soar it's like a long canoe shape inflatable 16 feet long, it weighs like 85 pounds, I think, uh, has a payload of 1,500 pounds. And I used one of those, uh, there were four of us that floated the Canyon River up at the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, hunting caribou, and we used two of those, and they're an amazing watercraft. They have a huge payload, they're very maneuverable, uh, so I have experience for one trip, and he's taken his on several trips up there. Oh, really? And then I'm taking an advanced elements, uh, it's basically an inflatable sea kayak with a heavy, like Cordura type mm-hmm. shell and little aluminum hoops in the front and back for the nose and tail structure. It can be a two person kayak, but I'm going to set it up for one person. And it weighs about 50 pounds with a 550 pound payload. So it's got enough room to put gear up underneath the skirt in front of me and behind me. And I figured two people in Chad's boat and one person in mine, and we will probably trade off. So if Sarah wants to fish out of Chad's boat part of the time and me float solo, uh, and then we can trade off every day or two. And Whoever's with Chad can fish free. And yeah, you know, chances are we're going to be pulling over. We're probably going to be living in our waders this whole trip. Yeah. So we'll all take probably a good Sims, good quality waiter, and just plan to live in those things. And... uh We'll probably pull over and get out and fish from the shore rather than fish from the boat. There's just 
There's yeah. no, no reason to fish from the boat in those kind of systems. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so you're thinking that the fish in the stream are going to be more of an attractant than uh, than you guys. And, oh, yeah. and I've seen, yeah, I've seen that over in Bristol Bay area where where brown bears are just walking right past people yep. that are fishing 35 feet away from them or whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. That's kind of what we expect. And, of course, I asked my pilot, uh, this is one of the, a little minor logistical thing, but it's pretty important. I asked him if he has any extra bear spray for me to take, and he says, sure, I'll throw a couple cans in for you guys. And I said, what about butane? And he, he said, well, butane is for fuel for cooking is usually readily available in Kodiak. Some remote villages in, in interior Alaska, you better plan ahead and have your butane and stuff shipped there ahead of time to someone you can trust. Because I got up to Kotzebue one time on a caribou hunt, and the stuff we ordered had been stolen by the person who was supposed to deliver it to our pilot. And there you sit in a community where there's no butane. And fortunately, some other hunters that were coming in said, here's five cans we didn't even use, and gave them to us. Wow. But little details like that, you know, as a hunter goes up and buys bear spray for $50 a can, and then a bunch of butanes for $7, $8 a can, uh, they can't fly them home, so they leave them with their pilot. Now, you don't want to assume that your pilot's going to loan or give it to you, so you always ask them ahead of time. And there's a, some weird local ordinance or law in, in uh, Kotzebue where your pilot is not allowed to sell you uh, butane and bear spray because it's taking business away from the two stores in town, and which is ridiculous because it's sitting there on a shelf. <laughs> and and the local stores don't have any so i ended up in a weird situation there on that but it it, it worked out in the end that some of those little details you really got to think ahead and after you've done a lot of trips up there you you know you, you, those kind of speed bumps kind of smooth out so how do you plan how do how do you get the impetus for this trip like there's we did a podcast a long time ago with uh with a guy named john wellfelt and john wellfelt back in like the 80s would call up bush pilot and just be like i'm looking to do like a three-week trip and um what's an interesting part of the country that you fly over that looks like it would be a nice three-week rafting and and he was building his own pack rafts as well so this was before you know alpaca and those people were making pack rafts and so that's how he was, and I mean, at the time, it's not like you could go on Google and be like, I want to take a cool um, trip in Alaska. It's not like you could go on Cal Topo, start looking at the maps or Google Earth. Um, so how do you get your impetus for this trip? Is it just you've seen those areas from your other hunts and you're like, that's a cool area and I think I'm going to do a trip linking them or does it? Yeah, um, well, in, for this particular trip, uh, Sarah, being an avid fly angler, she knew the reputation of the Carlick River and its steelhead run. Mm-hmm. And she came up with the idea. And I said, well, I just so happened to have hunted deer three different times on that side of the island looking down at that same river. I oh, said, yeah. I'm in. I'll, oh, do, yeah. I'll do it. Um, typically, my trips, um, now this, by the way, is my 19th trip up there. So... The first few I had to fill my way through, and now I have a pretty good network of friends and some former colleagues and acquaintances and people in business uh, up there that I know who to call and what to ask. 
uh, I have friends who were retired from Alaska Fish and Game or friends who are still working for that department. And if I don't, if they're not working in an area that I'm wanting to research, they know who is. And they say, and feel then, free to drop my name when you call this district and biologist. Then, and they just tell you who, where to go to. Now, you'll find out when you start doing that kind of research, a state wildlife biologist is not going to tell you this this bush plane pilot is a good one and that's a bad one. Yeah, yeah, they aren't allowed to give references. Yeah, they have to be really like. careful on that. And then... So once you find an area, you get a hold of a pilot, or and that's where you your, your hunting network through social media, blogs, podcasts, etc. You learn some, you meet some people, you learn who the reputable pilots are in that area, and uh, then you start calling those pilots. And there's only so many places that a plane, a float plane, or a plane on bush wheels can land. Because helicopters are not able, not uh, legal to use in any hunting application. I believe they can be used in fishing up there, if I'm not mistaken, but no hunting. You can't transport gear, people, meat, in or out with a helicopter uh, f- involving hunting at Why all. Is it's that? a, is it's it a just, state law. Is it just trying to keep things more, um, a helicopter has too many advantages as to oh, where gosh. it could put you? Alaska would have no game if helicopters could be used in hunting. Okay. That might be a slight exaggeration, but you can land a helicopter anywhere or hover it anywhere and have people jump off and throw their gear off. Um, by not allowing that, you have this default refugia, enormous areas of refugia for wildlife to exist unmolested, you know. Now you got gravel bars, ridge tops, uh, uh, crude created landing strips all over Alaska but not everywhere. So a pilot's going to be able to tell you, I can land here, 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 and here. That's the only places in my area that I can land you. So you got to decide, do you want to dry camp on a ridge top where I can land you with bush wheels, or are you going to go with my competition who uses floats and land on the lake or, you know, or something like that? Um, and then what type of hunting you're going to do, what kind of experience you're looking for, what area you want to go to is going to help kind of dictate whether which of those you're going to pursue. And um, once you decide that, you 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 also, another thing is the pilots are basically just an air taxi. They're legally not supposed to tell you this is a good place for game. I'm going to put you there because that's where all the moose are. That's where all the caribou are. They tell you where you can land, and you can discuss the habitat, the area, and I guess game densities in general. But really, they're not supposed to function like a guide or outfitter. They're just a transporter for you, and you have to use a, a licensed transporter, uh, or else you're going to be violating the law. Paying somebody with an airplane to drop you off is is illegal if they don't have a, you know, an air taxi license, basically. Really? Yeah. Okay. So you want to be careful, and a lot of people go to Alaska thinking it's so big and remote they could get away with things by cutting corners, but no, the state police that do the uh, state troopers that do in wildlife enforcement up there they're the real deal they take their job seriously they know every pilot they fly over there in their super cub and they see your camps um they see a carcass they fly over it really low and they see that eh, somebody didn't take the neck meat and there's a camp right there a quarter mile away um they'll land and they will get a story from you and they'll cite you if they think you wasted meat on that animal hmm. But, you know, some hunters come up there for their first or second time and think, eh, no one's going to check me up here. I can get away with stuff. Right, right. Y- you don't. You know, you should respect the game, respect their game laws, 
and know that they will nail you if you if you violate them. Oh, so. But um. Well, that's good stuff to know for our for our audience, definitely. If yeah. Anyone's, but I think our audience is probably all pretty above the board people trying to do things right. Oh yeah, yeah. So. But there's some things that uh, someone, if they didn't read up on the regulations, they could honestly get caught violating the law that they didn't know they were violating. One of those is bone-in laws. A lot of units in Alaska, uh, you have to pack out the four quarters of your moose or caribou with the bone-in. If you bone them out before you get to the place of processing, you're in violation. The rest of the carcass you can bone out. Okay. Um, the wanton waste laws is you take all edible meat. They don't require you to take uh, any of the organs. But, uh, of course, the four, four quarters, back straps, tenderloins, Rib meat, brisket meat, neck meat. All of that has to be removed from the carcass and taken back to camp. And your last load can include the antlers or horns. You cannot take the head out first first or anywhere in between until that last load of meat is also on its way out. And someone might say, what in the world would you care about that? Well, the unscrupulous hunter uh, gets back to town with half a moose and... uh, trooper says where's the rest of the moose as well we packed the head and part of it out and a bear got the rest i was like well you should have packed all the meat out before you went back for the head you wasted a trip with that head and you let a bear get your meat because of it Uh. so those are just some details that you gotta also if you don't care for your meat right it spoils you let it get wet it gets dirty it's not edible you could be cited for wasted meat even though you packed it out but you let it ruin Hmm. So, just things to remember. Okay. Yeah. So, the, um, your fishing trip, mm-hmm. I take it you're going to catch and release pretty much the whole time. Until the last day or two. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask my pilot if he's willing to bring a cooler and take whatever our daily limit is of silvers back from the uh, Uganic and, back on the, and throw them in trip. a freezer. And then our last day or so on the Carlic, do the fly some fish out with us if not uh, it'll be all catch and release and then i think sarah and i are going to do a day of uh, ocean fishing for cod rockfish halibut and salmon in the ocean yeah and though that'll be a meat trip oh that's cool so that's cool yep well awesome um so now you've been involved in bha for a very long time mm-hmm. right when did, when did you start your involvement you know, not as early as some people think, I guess. I, I heard about it not long after it formed, and I really liked the idea, the philosophy behind the group. And I think maybe in its, I don't know, third or fourth year of existence, I became a member. Oh, yeah. And then uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Jim Akinson, he's a archery mentor of mine and fellow biologist. He was just moving out of the backcountry of Idaho, and uh, I heard about the first director job for and I said, Jim, you would be a good fit for this. You need to look into that. He applied, ended up becoming the first director of BHA. Oh, he did? He did that for, I don't know how many, a couple years or something before they transitioned. And uh, Then it was Joel after that, or who was? Well, Land. No, Joel Later. Was, yeah, Joel Land. might have been. Joel was before Land. Okay, it, might have, it was Joel then, probably. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, uh, next thing you know, I someone asked me if I would do a, a presentation at one of these things. I think the first time was a uh, a panel about how to influence public land management. 
and I was with the Forest Service then, and I sat on there with uh, with uh, Fish and Wildlife Service person, BL, retired BLM guy, um, and we had a pretty good audience that year. That one was in Boise, I think, and we discussed uh, the public's role in commenting on NEPA, helping shape proposed actions, how to be effective in timber sales, recreation developments, whatever's happening on your public lands where you'd like to recreate. And then I think the next year I did a seminar on how to plan your own Alaska do-it-yourself hunting and fishing how, trips. How, how to take really shitty weather and lots of bears <laughs> yeah. being pinned in your tent and turn it into something you want to repeat. Uh, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but in that talk, I covered the whole gamut, uh, the pros and cons of using going on a float trip versus a drop camp, um, driving versus flying, uh, all those type of things, the different type of camps based on the different type of aircraft or boat you're going to use. Um, you know, I covered all that stuff and lots of different species that you can hunt as a non-resident without a guide. But since I had just got back from my goat hunt, I think the fall before I did cover my guided goat hunt Yeah. because, you know, goat, doll sheep and grizzly non-residents can't hunt without a licensed guide right, right. or family member they hunt with. Right, right. So... I know Dick Robertson gets in under that uh, family member. Yeah, uh, uh, Yote, Yote's no longer a resident up there, is he? Or I don't not? know. I, I don't was know. thinking he lives down here now, but I'm not positive. Yeah, those guys have had some incredible experiences with doll sheep and their stick uh, bows. I know. I try. I tried uh. to see if I could stow away on the plane, and <laughs> Dick told me I couldn't. He said, he, "He said, who's that other one they're going with?" I'm trying to think. Uh, 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 Doug Borland yeah, Doug has Borland. been with him, and uh, Don Thomas, Donald Thomas Jr. has been with him too. Yeah, he's like uh, Doug Borland won't let me. He'll have to kill me if I. Oh if yeah. I tell the spot. When you f when you find a a sheep spot, you keep it to yourself. Um, and you know, and I do have people, acquaintances, strangers, ask me um, to tell them everything about my trips. I just told you guys more on this about this trip than I've ever. I usually don't give those kind of details, but anybody could go float this trip, and I could do it next year or. You know, and it wouldn't change my experience. Do you but, have some other trips after this one? I mean, or, um, or is it every year you're just, you just kind of wake up, say, in January and are like, I'm feeling like a... <laughs> yeah, kind of. I try to plan something out of state every year if I can. But, man, I'm having withdrawals from COVID year. I didn't do anything but hunt a whitetail with a muzzleloader in Oregon. And I literally had to cancel three different river trips in Oregon. I just didn't do anything. Uh, and now I'm trying to make up for it this year. And, but so back to giving away uh, good hunting spots. Um, I could tell you where I shot my moose, who I flew with, and exactly where I, you know, how I did it and where I shot it. But I'm not going to do that because good hunting spots are precious, even in the endless resources and size of Alaska. Um, I know of a place that used to be really good deer hunting. Some guys went up there. Oh, and another place that used to be really good uh, caribou hunting on an island. And stories were written about it. And big groups of rifle hunters went up there. And within a few years, there was hardly any game Pe in those people, places. People figure it out. I was, they do. I was talking to uh, Brian Call and Ryan uh, Lampers. And they said they've been doing these deer hunts in the Frank Church, right? And they they filmed one of them. Real good film and all this. And the next year, they showed up, and there were people camping in their spots. They figured it out. They talked to outfitters. They started to be like, 
looking at Google Earth and everything and figuring out where that was. So like I've I've really been trying to like when people ask me about hunting areas, I try to give them. I don't mean to be vague, but I try to be like, well, I found in kind of an openish area with mixed habitat in the yeah. western part of the unit, <laughs> or, or 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 something, or and I've been trying to not share photos. Um, or if I show photos, kind of scrub them or make sure they're nondescript, like there's not an identifiable mountain. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's wise because um, good hunting spots are so precious, so valuable. And even though we want other hunters to be successful and come along and re- be recruited to our ranks, they should enjoy the same type of work and effort they put into it. I think you end up with more satisfaction when you've done the work yourself. Yeah, you have to learn the process a bit. Yep. You know, I don't want to take this whole old-timer thing of, well, you got to put in your dues, boy. <laughs> I know it. I know it. <laughs> and also, I have, uh, you know, pilot friends who uh, they're th- they tell me, you know, I'm getting close to the end of my career in this. I still have my license, but I'm really only flying myself and a few friends. Yeah. I'm not going to tell five other guys about that, and they call him, and then when I get ready he's gonna say yeah i'm booked up i got i was only flying two extra people this year and someone already called me from oregon and said they're gonna they got that slot so i'm not going to share my pilots necessarily with (laughs) with other people because that is a to have a really good pilot that you have a relationship with and you trust and they're safe um that's a really valuable part of alaska will tell you about his trips but he won't tell you his sources (laughs) exactly (laughs) yep well it's cool it's been pleasurable man Thank Thanks you. for joining the podcast. I always enjoy talking with about Alaska and talking to you, so okay. thanks for having me on. you have anything else, any parting shots? No, I think we pretty well covered it. So other than really didn't plug Seek Outside much, that's my go-to shelter for Alaska. That is. I've had my eight-person TP in Alaska probably seven or eight times in some of the most torrential rain and wind. Um, and it has held up. A couple of times I had to get up in the middle of the night and restake some things with 50 mile an hour winds. But uh, get some twisty stakes. Yeah, yeah. You know th- those 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 are pretty money. I'm going to get some of those. I also use the snow and sand stakes in tundra sometimes. Yeah. Those slide into tundra really nice, and they got a lot of surface area to pull against. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll take my stove if I'm in an area that I know will have some wood. Some places will not have wood. There just is no wood to burn. And um, a little trick I did learn on one of my trips is a guy told me to go to the hardware store and buy some of those Dura logs. Five, six of them. I don't recommend. I don't recommend those. Okay. Um, or uh, I don't recommend Dura flame. So I don't okay. know if you're. Um, they they really soot up your pipe pretty well, and they can clog up your arrestor pretty well if you. Yep. Um, I mean they well, can work, but they'll. So I cut them into small chunks. So take a few and cut them into little chunks about four inches long. And then I take my arrestor out. I don't need one up there. Because oh. um, it's just down. You're not going to start a forest fire in most of that where I hunt anyway. And um, I will put a piece of it in there with the then green or whatever wood I can find. It's usually crappy wood like alder, willow, yeah. cottonwood, spruce. But without the start of that heat. It's tough to get it going. But it, I, I agree. I wouldn't burn a solid one in it, there. It is tough to get that going. What I yep. There are some that you can buy on Amazon okay. that are just pure compressed wood. Mm-hmm. But for what you're doing, 
Um, yeah, I, I could agree that the Dura the Duraflame is probably going to be the good starter to help you get yep. those green woods. Yeah, and that's all after. I use it for is a yeah. starter. So yeah. Anyway, for what that's worth, um, I love that shelter and I use it anytime I can up there. Awesome, awesome. So. Been a pleasure having you. Ed. Thank you. Take care. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the Seek Outside podcast. Hope you enjoyed it this week. Remember, we do have an email address if you would like to leave any questions, comments, concerns. We'd love to hear that feedback. Uh, that email address is podcast at seekoutside.com. So feel free. We're always here. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a great week.